Good morning, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Nehemiah. This morning we'll be in chapter 9. Your bulletin says that we'll be going through verse 8, but I'll only be covering through verse 6 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9, remembering together that these are the words of the Lord. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel gathered with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they rose up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they were confessing and worshiping Yahweh their God. Then Jeshua rose up on the Levites' platform, along with Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to Yahweh their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Rise up, bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down to you. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, as we do each week, even unknowingly, we have entered in to the praises of everything you created, whether it is seen or unseen. We thank you that through Christ and his blood have we been enabled to offer to you worship that is acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And now, as we continue in worship, we admit our frailty, that we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate these words, that he might move amongst us, teaching us what we ought to understand from these words and that our lives might be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We ask this now in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. This last week, I finished a, a book titled Into Thin Air. It's an autobiographical account of author John Krakauer's 1996 assignment by Outside Magazine to climb Mount Everest and document the largely negative effects commercialism and tourism were having on the highest peak in the world. As John makes the ascent, accompanied by both guides and local Sherpa hiking assistants, and an unusually large number of pay-for-play adventurers sharing a largely atheistic worldview. 
A series of unfortunate events begin to unfold in the increasingly low oxygen endurance challenge. Teammates are getting sick. Climbers are falling into glacial crevasses. Oxygen tanks malfunction, so on and so forth. However, most everyone on that trip was able to reach the summit of Mount Everest. But then the unimaginable began to happen. On their way back to Camp 4, their highest rendezvous point, the team is caught in a storm with winds in excess of 100 miles an hour and temperatures which to this point have not climbed above the single digits now plummet below negative 100 degrees. Hypothermia sets in rapidly. Frostbite completely destroys hands and faces. And whole bodies start freezing literally in their place. On the morning of May 11, 1996, over 12 climbers died on the mountain, making it the most disastrous event in Everest history to that point. Their bodies are still frozen in place on that mountain to this day. The rest of the team had to make the technical climb back down, either injured or exhausted, or both, while the mountains seemed to be hurling rocks down at them. One crushed a man's skull completely. Those who remained alive all asked the same question, and keep in mind that almost everyone on this trip is a materialist. They all ask the same question. What did we do to make this mountain so angry? It's almost instinctual for Christians in the West today to read stories like this one and respond that circumstances and random chance events like these are to blame. That random chance is what causes tragedies like this. We who have a supernatural worldview quickly jump to our naturalistic explanations to insulate our minds from the idea of an unseen and potentially very hostile realm. Bad stuff happen. It is what it is. It's common saying. That's not what the pagan Nepalese Sherpas said as they descended the mountain in 1996. They had other explanations. And that's not what Christians throughout almost all of church history would have said had they heard of this same event. And most importantly, that's not what the inspired writers of the Bible were prompted by the Holy Spirit to inform us of that we do in fact wrestle not against flesh and blood from Ephesians 6.12. This morning in Nehemiah 9, we get to see some of what is normally unseen. Well, after a wonderful message last week on the sufficiency of Christ, we return today to Nehemiah's Israel and we find the people in a state of fasting and mourning. Verse 1 says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel gathered with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. Now this may seem a bit odd. You may remember that these people had just been chastised 
within the last month for lamenting during the Feast of Trumpets. Ezra and Nehemiah and the rest told them to celebrate the feast with joy. No mourning right now, only rejoicing. But here on the 24th of that month, two days after the end of that series of feasts, culminating in the Feast of Booths, the people gathered a cry aloud to Yahweh their God. And we're given no reason for the prompting of this meeting, the sackcloth, the dirt that's on their heads, which leads some Bible scholars today to get creative about reasons why the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 9 really don't belong in your Bible. I admit that to this point, I have refrained from speaking about scholarly objections to the text, and there are many of them. I think it's right that we should show love to our academically-minded neighbors. Give, uh, you, I would not want to give you the impression that they actually just sit in some seedy seminary basement somewhere discussing new ways to refute the claims of the Bible. I want to be kind to them. Um, sadly, were I to make such a claim... Um, what I said uh, about biblical scholarship today um, and, and how uh, horrible uh, their slander is against the Bible, well, it would, it would not be an egregious slander for me to make such a charge. I would ask the academics, however, do the people of God need an official reason, like a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath, to get together and weep and mourn as they do here in our text this morning? Is it not just as likely that the people who sat under the preaching of the word for the previous three weeks, remember they're reading every day from the law of God, are deeply convicted about their sin, the sin of their ancestors. These Levites sense this and then they call a meeting and they say, let's have some public confession. Let's all gather together and cry out to Yahweh our God. And don't miss again a picture into the corporate nature of the people of God. It's not everybody go home to your little private closet and confess your sins privately to God. That's necessary at times. There's also a corporate gathering and the confession of sin here together. Now, we can't strike out this passage of Nehemiah, brothers and sisters. Not only is it God's holy word, but there is more going on here than just an old covenant season of mourning. First, we see the people of Israel's true confession. This is a people who has come to grips with their sin. They see it for the ugly thing that it is, and they come to the point of bringing it to the light, not just in a private prayer, a prayer prayed in the quietness of one's heart. These exiles do, as Will Templeton encouraged the men recently at the Beer and Psalms, they give names to their sins, biblical names, covetousness, gossip, slander, pride, bitterness, crooked speech, uh, fits of rage, violent outbursts, etc. They spoke these sins out loud to their God. They said it in front of others at the gathering, even at the risk of public esteem of them falling. They are telling their God, we want to be a righteous people. We want to be holy. 
We are tired of this thing that keeps eating us up, ruining our homes and our families and our thought life and our sleep and our communion with Yahweh our God. We are tired of it. We bring it out into the open. Here, God and everyone, we do not want this sin anymore. A true biblical confession. Second, you see a corporately committed body. James chapter 5, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The third thing that we see is a congregation hungry for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, for they shall be satisfied. What are these all pictures of? What are these types pointing us to? What is going on with Israel right here in the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 9? You see a legitimate repentance that leads to real congregational unity and powerful sanctification. This, I believe, would have to be one of the passages that the apostles would have turned to to take in new converts to and say, this is what the new birth should look like in your life. I know the old covenant saints don't have access to the Spirit in the same way that we do. But in looking forward to God's Messiah and trusting in His power to save them, they were indeed saved looking forward to the cross as we now look back on the cross and are saved. How many were saved in this congregation? The text doesn't tell us. But we do see the powerful working of God leading to a repentance that is transformative in these people's lives. This is why I won't spend a lot of time on the fasting element here. It is important. It's certainly right there in the text. We should all have regular seasons of fasting as the Lord Jesus expected us to. I spoke recently on fasting in a sermon from Ezra chapter 8 that was on December the 4th of last year. And you can listen to that message if you want to dig deeper into the topic of fasting. But the fasting, however, is not front and center, per se, in the text this morning. It's all Israel coming together, united. Remember, all of one mind, and what are they doing? They're making public confession to Yahweh, their God. Notice the lack of outsiders in the group. It's hard to miss in verse 2. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is another one of those puzzles to objectors of the Bible. Why were the foreigners excluded? Did not the law command that the stranger who is in your town would be allowed to come to these events and learn how to rightly worship Yahweh their God? I think there are two main reasons for this. Again, this is a picture, a type of a kind of a pre-New Covenant congregation, if you will, where no outsiders are in their midst because only the true children of God are in the New Covenant. Only the true children of God make a true confession to God. The second thing that we ought to see here is that these people are confessing not just their sins, but it says in the text they're also confessing to the sins of their ancestors. No liberal today would say that African Americans should get together in white churches when the privileged crowd 
is confessing their ancestral sins. This would be anathema in the mind of the left. Israel's outsiders weren't invited because they weren't involved in the sins of these ancestors. Someone might ask, well, is this an example then of our need to confess ancestral sins from our past? Didn't God say, but everyone will die for his own iniquity? Each man who eats the sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. That's from Jeremiah 31, verse 30. Happens to also come right before the promise of the new covenant. Doesn't this kind of thinking lend itself to all the silly social justice nonsense about being guilty for generational sins, which require a never-ending stream of repenting for something that you never did? Yes, God did say that bit about the sour grapes, and I have no interest in promoting the falsehoods of socialist communist ideologues, but here's where we, beloved, get off track. What is going on in chapter 9 doesn't have anything to do with individuals. You have to remember that as you're going through the text. It doesn't have anything to do with a solitary person's sin or right standing before God. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not these Israelites were now required, because of their ancestors' sins, to hand out reparations to the Canaanites for kicking them out of the promised land. And then they, the Israelites, fornicating all over it like heathen. This is Israel, and this is so crucial to see. This is Israel, in this moment, finally getting the story right. They've had to be corrected so many times up to this point. Don't cry. Don't do those things. Stop this. We've got to come together. They've had to be corrected again and again and again. But now they're getting the story right. The old man, the old Israel sinned, and he was sent away into exile. The old Israel went into the grave, if you'll allow me to say it that way. And now Israel has come alive again and has been brought back to the promised land. They have come back under the joy of Yahweh their God. They have come back with one heart and one mind. They have come back like the prodigal son, admitting the wrongs of the past and worshiping God for delivering them. Again, precisely why the outsiders were omitted from this meeting. Here we have a fully reborn Israel showing their rebirth by the fruit bearing of confessing their sins to Yahweh their God, keeping in step with God by bearing fruit in repentance, as Matthew 3 says. Now, I don't want you to hear me conflating the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What we experience post-cross is unique and profound. And those in the Old Covenant who were justified as Abraham was, the Bible tells us, were by faith still waiting for the fullness of the promises. All these then, Hebrews tells us, died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles in the earth, they still had not received the promises. Yet even here, they give us a picture from Nehemiah of the kind of new birth that God will do among his people when he redeems them from their sin through the blood of Christ. And there's even more evidence of this right here in this passage. They go on like this for half of the day. Three hours of worship 
and three hours of Bible study. It sounds to me like they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Hmm. Sounds to me like they're not forsaking the assembly of the brethren. Old covenant examples of new covenant fruit. Brothers and sisters, this group of exiles is meant to paint a picture of a renewed holy nation, as Peter's going to say in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. Now I want to ask this morning, does your new covenant life in Christ manifest this kind of unsolicited, unrequested, spontaneous confession of sin? Verbally confessing your sin. Not in your heart, but saying it out loud and naming it biblically. After the talks from this last weekend, I wonder if there are unconfessed sins between husbands and wives, particularly about the bedroom. We've now had discussions with both the married men and the women of the church on the topic of Jesus' authority of all areas of life, including marital sex and intimacy. Now, this is just the beginning of these conversations. As we mentioned, we didn't cover every issue. But I wonder if there's a brother here today who's felt conviction about the bitterness that he has towards his wife. Bitterness about her attitude at home or in public that embarrasses him. Bitterness about her appearance, which is leading to a sinful avoidance of a romantic pursuit of her, which he is commanded to do. This brother is not interested in treating her like the garden that she is, creating a home atmosphere of protection and provision, leading to her frustration and an attitude of withdrawal, which compounds the issue. I wonder if there's a brother here who treats each encounter with his wife like me time and refuses to find ways to serve her joy even after the lovemaking is over. Brothers, would you be willing to confess these things verbally, out loud, to your spouse? Look her in the eyes and truly repent of them. Do you believe God when he says that you will find mercy and grace for a better marriage if you do just that? Are you putting on a brave face in front of your brothers here and you won't even talk openly with your wife about the lovemaking which God commands of all married people for our joy? Sisters, you all have it very hard. The world claims to have placed a hedge of protection around women today because all women today are indeed victims of the dominance of men. When in reality, what the world has done is placed a hedge of protection around the sins of women. And there is nothing that gets more cover today than women's sinning in marital faithfulness to their husbands. My body, my choice, me too. Intersectional feminism. I looked that word up this week. Didn't even know it existed. Women's rights are human rights. These are some of the top hashtags on the internet today. Also included in those hashtags for women are Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ+. Hidden agendas, maybe? Christian women are thus subtly led to believe 
that Paul was correct in saying the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. But Paul was off his rocker for saying the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, I'm sure that most of our women here today would say, I don't buy any of that garbage from the world. I believe both of those statements that Paul made. Then let me ask this in the way that it was posed to the women last night. Which of these ladies is true of you? Would you say that your husband's presence is welcome and his appetite is a delight to serve? Or would you say that your husband's presence is a burden and his appetite disgusts you? Sisters, do you intentionally create an atmosphere of coldness to your husband so that he will be less likely to make advances towards you? Is this your passive way of telling him no without openly rejecting him? Are you keeping the letter of the law while breaking the heart of it? One of the qualifications for an elder is that he be hospitable. To practice this, I have tried to always have a place in our home available for people to stay when they need. I can claim, therefore, that I meet, de facto, the qualification of hospitality. But if you interviewed someone who stayed in our home, and they responded, well, yeah, he let me stay there, but I asked if I could wash some clothes, and he didn't let me, because he didn't think his washing machine would handle his family's laundry and my family's laundry, so he said I wasn't allowed. And I asked if I could eat dinner with the family, but he told me he wasn't sure the budget was good enough this month for providing all that food so that I would have to bring my own meal. And when I tried to pour a cup of coffee in the morning, he said there wasn't enough heavy whipping cream for two people, so I should wait until he went to the store to get some more. And he asked me while he was gone not to touch the mayonnaise. <laughs> him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I understand that that sounds pretty silly. But if the church found out that I did hospitality that way, would I truly be qualified according to the biblical standard of hospitality given in the Bible? I would clearly not. Sisters, do you have a warm and inviting attitude towards your husband when it comes to the bedroom? Are you robbing him of the strength that God supplies him through your openness to his advances, advances towards you? Do you see that this actually undermines and even robs you and your children of a joyful and satisfied leader? Psalm 19 verse 5 says that the sun is like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, running its course with joy. Isn't that what you want your husband running around the house like? <laughs> Full of joy. Do you need to confess to him, sisters, that you have intentionally been cold in order to limit the number of counters that you have and you want to stop and move towards a posture of welcome to him? Brothers and sisters, let us be willing to confess our sins to one another, even those of the most intimate kind. As exemplified in this reconstituted Israel in Nehemiah chapter 9, confessing to one another in the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
We break the chains of our own enslavement and take back ground for our new covenant joy in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, before I deal with this next section of text, which is tremendously important, I want to set the stage for what's going to happen over the next three weeks in our study of Nehemiah. The people have gathered for this impromptu ceremony of confession, intending to make congregational break from their own sins as well as the sins of their forefathers. Yes, we understand that that happened in the past. We will not be those people. We break from that. In verse 4, you see a group of Levites leading this event from the platform that was mentioned. It was created back in chapter 8. In verse 5, another group ordering responses from the congregation. Now, it may seem a little strange that of those two lists containing eight different names, five are repeated. So it's, again, more fodder for textual revisionists that somebody who was transcribing got names wrong, and so the Bible is corrupt and can no longer be trusted. Most likely, however, some of these men took turns leading, and there were others intermingled amongst the people to direct their responsiveness to the word as it was preached. Another thing to note is that this gathering isn't just a long string of confession. There's lots of praise involved here too. The first group of Levites leads in the confession. The Hebrew word for cried in this passage gives itself to that flavor. And the second group called for a response of worship to Yahweh for his deliverances from their sin. Now, whichever way you take it, the second half of verse 5 begins a long prayer that we're going to take the next two weeks to look at the bulk of. The people will confess both of their sins and Israel's ancestors, and they'll also praise God for his many graces in saving his people again and again. Now, don't let this theme leave your mind as we work through chapter 9. Don't let it leave your mind also every moment that you find yourself in sin, you are broken, you repent, and you walk back to God, don't let your head hang low. You see, the people confessed, and then they worshipped. They confessed, and then they worshipped. There is a smile, brothers and sisters, on your Father's face to save you. He delights in the work of Christ on your behalf. And that, in every transgression of your life, both small and great, you were set free by your future bridegroom. Now, I want to conclude this sermon by helping us also, as these Israelites are finally getting the story right, I want to run a calibration on us and make sure that we're getting the big picture, the big story of the Bible right when we come and we study the Word of God. What I'm about to say might seem like a minor point, but in the minds of the Israelites reciting this prayer, it was anything but minor. What I'm going to say in the next few minutes will be, without a doubt, one of the most controversial things I've probably ever said to most of you. I'm going to speak to you this morning about the unseen realm, the supernatural nature of the world, and the consistent worldview of both the Old and the New Testaments. I believe with all my heart that this is the story that God is telling and the actual events of human history. For many of you, this is going to throw a huge wrench in your preconceived notions and presuppositions about the universe. Even if you are raised in a church, 
you were raised in an environment of materialism. We all have to admit that. Every one of us. Modern day champion of secularism and high priest of the materialist movement, Carl Sagan, whose famous documentary, The Universe, I had to watch in public school, famously said, the universe is all there ever was, all there is, and all there ever will be. Yet, as the London Baptist Confession of Faith states, our God, who is the creator of all things, created both everything seen and unseen. Carl Sagan is wrong. And I'll just say, beloved, as I've learned about this topic and how it applies to all of the Bible over the last several years, there is a whole lot more invisible stuff than we realize. I want you to look at verse 6 with me. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down to you. Now, as we're going to go through the history of Israel over the next two weeks, the people rightly begin in Genesis. And this is basically a summary of Genesis 1. The exiles are praying a prayer of praise to God for creating all things. You see that. It's plain in front of you there. You probably read the words heavenly hosts and think of Genesis 1, and God also created the stars. But at the end of the verse, you have that same group of hosts bowing down to Yahweh. And the response of most Christian readers of the Bible today is likely, well, then the hosts are not stars, but they must be angels. But that, that seems to confuse the passage a little bit. So I'll ask what may seem like a silly question. Are angels and stars mutually exclusive? You might respond by saying, well, yes, of course they're not the same thing. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that stars can't be angels because we've used telescopes to see into outer space and it is clear that a star is nothing more than a huge ball of flaming gas. And I'm tempted to answer that objection the way the personified star Ramondu in Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader responded to the same exact statement by Eustace Clarence Scrub. Ramondu said, Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Now, are we so biased that we only believe what we can see? God said to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. On what were its foundations set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You're meant to see parallelism there. Hebrew parallelism. Morning stars singing, sons of God shouting for joy. He's repeating the same statement. Now, I don't want to get on a tangent right now trying to ultimately convince you that every star is also a heavenly being. Some of you may already be questioning my sanity at this point. But I'm raising this issue to prove a bigger point about the Bible story. 
We write off much of the biblical narrative because of our commitment to materialism, naturalism, and if you think of Gnosticism as this hidden thing, this unseen thing, we in Christianity today have, if I can conflate two terms, a Gnostic materialism. We believe the opposite. Our hidden thing is that only the visible is real. What is invisible can't be real. Who gave us the right? Ask yourself this question, really. Who gave us the right to look at the Bible and make blanket assumptions through a grid of materialism and naturalism and scientism? This is how most Christians read the Bible today. Star over here, angel over here. And most Christians today in what Lewis, I think, rightly calls chronological snobbery, which is thinking that whatever comes later must be far advanced than what came before, we look back on the readers of the Bible and we think them fools for thinking that there's all this unseen stuff in the world. I'm convinced, as Job was, that I in my lifetime have declared that which I did not understand. Things too marvelous for me, which I did not know. Something I've needed to confess. Take another example of the unseen realm in the scriptures. From Psalm chapter 82. This first verse of the psalm says, God takes his stand in the congregation of God. He judges in the midst of gods. I'll read that one more time. God takes his stand in the congregation of God. So there's a group. Here, present. He judges in the midst of God's. How long will you judge unrighteously and show partiality to the wicked, Yahweh says. Now, I did not misread that verse. You have a singular God translated in English. The Hebrew is Elohim. And a plural God's Elohims. Right there in front of you in your Bible in Psalm 82 verse 1. Now, before anybody freaks out, the Jews were not, are not polytheists. And, more importantly, as Christians, neither are we. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. From Isaiah 45, stated emphatically from the Lord's own mouth, There is no other God besides me a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Well, then I don't understand Psalm 82. That doesn't make any sense. In Psalm 82, beloved, David, who wrote the psalm, is speaking of a historical reality in which God, who created all things, remember, visible and invisible, from the Catechism, also Colossians 1, where Chad had us last week. He created powerful beings that the Bible calls Elohim. And that those Elohim were sent to judge the nations. And some of them didn't obey Yahweh, their God. They did a bad job. A response might be, now hang on. I thought the only unseen things that God created were angels. Maybe he created an archangel or two. And some of those angels got 
turned wrong ways because uh, they followed Satan in his rebellion and they became demons. Now, have I missed something, Chris? And I would say, as a matter of fact, you've missed quite a bit. And this is unfortunately largely not your fault. The translators of all English Bible translations, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament, have consolidated a variety of terms used for various created heavenly beings under the one term, angel. You read through the Bible and angel, 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 angel. They're everywhere. All God created was angels. And then some turned bad and they became demons. But especially in the Hebrew, the word changes very frequently from creature to creature. In the medieval mind, there were 13 or 14 different rankings of heavenly created beings. It's not such a small invisible world after all. These Elohim are also referred to in the Old Testament as the sons of God. You see this in Genesis chapter 6. We talked about that when we were going through 1 Peter chapter 4. Now I want you to listen to Deuteronomy 32. This is a passage that I've read from for several weeks now. I learned this this last week. (laughs) Opened up so many doors and questions that I have. But now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. Here it is. Deuteronomy 32 verses 7 and 8. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided up mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now your translation will likely say the sons of Israel in verse 8. But without getting to a big technical argument here, the correct Hebrew translation is in fact sons of God. The same Elohim referred to by David in Psalm 82. In fact, this is what David was referring to. What you're looking at here in front of you, which is confirmed by the Septuagint, and the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have, overwhelmingly confirmed by the manuscript evidence that we have. This is the Romans 1 of the Old Testament, the disinheriting of the nations that God did as he gave them over again and again to their sins. While, and this is what's really interesting, at the same time as God disinherited the nations. He apportioned them out. He gave some to this son of God and this son of God and these created beings that he gave authority over to different areas and he pushed these people away from his presence. What did he do? In verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. At the same time as he said no to all of these people, he chose and he said, and these are going to be mine. Yahweh gave the nations over to the judgment of these created lowercase g gods, but chose a people for his own name, starting with who? With Abraham. Isn't it interesting that at the, the next thing that the Israelites are going to talk about in Nehemiah 9, the next figure that comes onto the scene is Abraham. 
Have you thought about what led up to God's choosing of Abraham? The issue that led to the global flood was the Genesis 6 sexual encounter between the sons of God and the daughters of men, which resulted in a mixed race of giants. After that flood, mankind decided to build a great tower to the sky in the land of Shinar, and God confused their languages, and what did he do? He dispersed them across the earth. And in the same breath, he said in Ur of the Chaldeans, which Shinar is in Chaldea, God said, everybody go away and I want that guy. In the same breath, he pushed peoples away and he chose Abraham. So when Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6 verse 12. The original audience was steeped in a worldview that would have no trouble imagining what part of the cosmos Paul was talking about. This is the worldview of the writers and readers of the Bible. Without missing a beat... Paul, in the New Testament, can say things to Timothy like, the Spirit explicitly says in latter times that some will fall away from the faith. How will they fall away from the faith, Paul? By paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, I would never get involved in that. Oh, really? Paul says that those deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons enter the church of Jesus Christ through the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared of their own conscience. It's 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Even considered, or have you ever considered, that liars with seared consciences trying to lead the people of God away from Christ and fidelity to His Lordship were actually promoting the doctrines of currently living and active demons? You ever considered that? Someone will want to stop me at this point. And say something along the lines of, so what? How does this have any bearing on my life? Won't this just get us distracted from our real mission? How is this gospel-centered? Can't people get obsessed about angels and demons and it cause anxiousness and fear? Won't this take glory away from our Lord Jesus Christ? And I would actually say, to deny the unseen realm... And all that God has done there through the gospel robs Jesus Christ of glory he is due. I, we're, here we are in Nehemiah 9. And last week, Chad pro, uh, preached from, from Colossians chapter 2. I, I was marveling at it as he was reading through the passage last week, thinking about where we were going to be this week. In Colossians chapter 2, the unseen world is everywhere. And everything in the unseen world in Colossians 2 is challenging the supremacy and the authority of Christ. Paul says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, that is Christ, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Listen to this. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Human tradition flows from what Paul calls the elemental spirits of the world. I don't know why some translations use the term elemental principles of the world. They're having to over-translate here. The ESV actually has the correct translation, spirits. And this is confirmed by those two words that I read at the end of that section in verse 10. The words rule and authority. You guessed it. Those are the same words that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 6. Rulers and authorities. Same exact Greek word. Here in Colossians 2, Jesus Christ is the conqueror of this unseen realm insurrection. All that the angels attempted to do to bring man into fall and destroy everything in creation, Christ has conquered. His gospel is the statement of victory over the rebellious sons of God of the Old Testament. Peter says as much in 1 Peter chapter 4. Quoting Paul now, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, this is Colossians 2, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Thank you for the gospel because he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Same word used above. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them, the rulers and authorities, in Jesus Christ. That's verses 13 through 15. If we need any more evidence of this, Paul goes on to talk about asceticism a little bit later on in Colossians 2, verse 18, which is the same kind of doctrines of demons that he was telling Timothy about in 1 Timothy 4. People today who are in the throes of an unholy asceticism not devoted to Yahweh, not devoting their practices of piety to Yahweh, are instead worshiping the rulers and authorities that Christ died to disarm. Now, beloved, how is that for another week on the supremacy of Christ? No unseen enemy can rival this King Jesus of ours. When he sat down, all of our enemies got put on a long list to one day, one at a time, as we spread the gospel and conquer the world, get made into a nice footstool for the feet of Jesus. None of these invisible, extraordinarily powerful, yet created beings can rival our all-knowing, all-powerful, completely sovereign and uncreated God. And as I conclude... I want you to consider one more thing. These exiles are beginning a prayer retelling the sins of their ancestors and how Yahweh redeemed his people in spite of that sin. But as you see, there was more going on than meets the eye. Has the Enlightenment made such ideas like the ones I talked about just now unthinkable to you? Does modernism color your presuppositions about the Word of God? I'm not saying that every naturalistic understanding of a verse is wrong. But the authors of the Bible are both consistent and clear about the supernatural nature 
of the world. We have been taught to not see the layered nature of the universe. In the seventh letter to the underdemon Wormwood, Uncle Screwtape said, The greatest trick the devil ever played and pulled over on the world was convincing the world that he did not exist. Which is not what Peter said. Be sober of spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, if I piqued your interest this morning, please hear me say this, and here it is a warning. The other extreme, and that namely being obsession with the unseen realm, is just as dangerous as being ignorant of it. If you do an unrestrained deep dive into this particular topic, you are likely to get more than you bargained for. Be warned. God forbids both obsession with the unseen realm, devoting yourselves to those angels and their doctrines, and also ignorance of it. He wants us to be aware. Watchful is the term used in the New Testament. Ready for the battle, not against flesh and blood. This is why the confession at the beginning of Nehemiah is so significant. What we went through this morning, and now we've talked about all this interesting stuff about the unseen realm, let your mind go back to the beginning of this chapter and what the Israelites did. It is so significant. It is not only a pursuit of reconciliation with God, but it is a declaration to God's enemies, both seen and unseen, that they, the Israelites, will not be controlled by them any longer. Here's my dirty laundry. It's out in the open. You can't chain me up to that again. I'm not going back down that road. My fathers did that. I'm not going there. Our chains, beloved, also, through the work of Christ, are gone. We won't submit to a yoke of slavery again. Beloved, be warned. We will have war in our day, both seen and unseen. May God see us confessing to him, worshiping him, and warring against his enemies, whether they be invisible or invisible. Please pray with me. Father, as we embark over this next week on a journey through the history of Israel, would you help us remember these things that we have heard this morning? First and foremost, that there is, there are unseen powers that try to control us, that try to enslave us, and those powers are often successful, and they are successful chiefly because we want to keep our sin hidden. And Lord, help that not to be the case. May our sin find us out. May it come into the open. May we be unable to protect or guard our sin. And may we publicly confess it if need be. Confess it to our brothers and sisters here, and as James says, be healed. Lord, would you help us to understand the story, and that you came to conquer not just what we can see in this earth, but everything in the universe you created. You are the only uncreated being. You are the only God, as your word says. And we know that even these powerful creations of yours that have turned in rebellion against you have no chance against the people of Jesus Christ when they're living in repentance and faithfulness towards him. 
So Lord, help us to do that this week. And as we turn now to the table, let us remember again the point of victory over all the darkness when the body was crushed and the blood was spilt and Satan was defeated. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.